0: I'll read that and Carl will come up and preach. When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, to be clean. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralysed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfil what, what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took out our infirmities and carried our diseases. Thank you, Carl.
1: Thanks, Will. And uh, thanks for the reminder that it's Father's Day today as well, so I know, uh, I know that I have to ring my father. Uh, actually, I was, I was reminded yesterday actually, somewhat embarrassingly, as I went to, uh, as I went to the shops and uh, I bought a bow tie and a box of hankies. And I took them to the counter and uh, the guy said, late Father's Day present, hey? And I had to explain to him that actually the bow tie and the hankies were for me and not for my father. But that's another story. Well, no uh, doubt uh, you uh, might have seen the uh, the title of the sermon uh, in the bulletin this morning, the leaflet this morning, "The Shape of Biblical Faith." And uh, this morning, what I hope to do uh, as we look at uh, this part of the Book of Matthew is to try and ask the question and answer the question. I guess more importantly, what is biblical faith? What is faith? I remember hearing uh, Matt. Jacoby speaking, I don't know if you know Matt Jacobi, he's from uh, the band Sons of Koran. I remember him, him saying that he finds that the longer that uh, he goes on in the Christian life, the more he finds the simplest things the most perplexing. Uh, at the time he was doing a, a preaching through a series on uh, doctrines, simple doctrines in the Christian life and he'd found actually that they were immensely difficult to come to terms with. And, and it's strange, isn't it, that something as as rudimentary, as, as important, as, as crucial as faith, sometimes can actually be very intangible and hard to understand and hard to put our finger on. If you asked someone on the street what faith was, you'd probably get a whole range of different answers. Uh, some people might say that faith uh, is what, what you need when you can't know something for certain. So, you know, if, uh, if, if the facts don't go there, then what you need is faith uh, to get you there. Uh, so faith sort of is, is nothing more really than a good guess. Uh, for others, faith is the thing that keeps you going. It's the thing that you believe to get you through the difficult times. Believe in yourself, you know, believe uh, whatever it is. Uh, and so faith is, is little more than, than a psychological trick uh, you know, to help you get through life. There too I think of the more common secular definitions of faith, but what does the Bible say that faith is? Well Matthew uh, uses these events in chapter 8, these events in Jesus' life to explain to us, to describe to us, to show to us what biblical faith is. Uh, Actually uh, chapter 8 in Matthew is the first time that faith is even mentioned in his Gospel and over the next two chapters, chapters 8 and 9, it's mentioned a total of six times. These these two chapters uh, all up uh, are really designed to show us what faith is and to show us who Jesus is. And this morning we're going to look at these three sections uh, and try and understand the shape of biblical faith. The first thing I think that this uh, passage tells us about biblical faith uh, is that great assurance, that assurance of faith is not of the essence of faith itself. Great assurance is not of the essence of great faith. In the first account, uh, this leper comes up to Jesus, he kneels before him and he says these words, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The words of the leper are are a very simple statement of faith. He has no doubt that Jesus is able to heal him uh, from his uh, disease but he doubts His concern is whether or not Jesus will heal him. Uh, We might be tempted to understand the leper's words as a lack of faith. Uh, We might think that he ought to have believed from the outset that Jesus was willing. Uh, If he was our friend we might say something to him like, believe, just believe and it will happen. But notice that it was to this hesitant faith that Jesus responded. The words of this leper, I think, are so helpful for us because they they guard us from taking a misstep over what biblical faith really is. Uh, the, the, le- the leper doesn't come to Jesus and say, I believe you've already made me better. Uh, he doesn't say to Jesus, I know, Jesus, that you're about to make me well the faith which Jesus responds to is not believism, it's not believing really hard that God will do it, rather the, the faith of this leper was merely the faith to believe that Jesus was powerful enough to help, the faith to believe that he was utterly dependent on Jesus' mercy, would Jesus do it or not, and the faith to come to Jesus and ask for help. And even though it was mixed with doubt and uncertainty on whether, regarding whether Jesus was willing to do it, Jesus responded to the faith of this leper. One of the great things that the 17th century Puritans uh, realised was that faith and assurance of faith were two different things. They weren't the same thing. They realised that it was possible to trust in Jesus uh, and to be saved and yet doubt your own salvation. They realised it was possible to be truly saved and yet not be full of conviction about that to not be full of joy about that. They also realised that to not have assurance was not the ideal. Assurance, they understood, was, was a precious jewel in the Christian life. I've got a, a book on my bookshelf by one of the Puritans called Heaven on Earth. It's about assurance. He's saying that, that one of the great ways of experiencing the realities of heaven here on earth is to have assurance that we are saved. Assurance is the path to joy and the path to usefulness as well. It's hard to be useful in the Gospel if we don't know that we're saved and we don't have any joy about the Gospel. So the Puritans realised that assurance was, was important but they also realised that it was possible to be truly saved and yet not be convicted of that, not be full of joy. You might desperately hope for salvation from Christ, you might know that it's in Christ alone and yet doubt whether or not that belongs to you as well. One of the great statements ever written on the subject of assurance of salvation is from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was written about the same time. Uh, and I think it's probably one of the best things ever written about anything ever, uh, which is a big call. But let me read a few bits uh, from it about what it says about assurance of faith. Uh, First it says, it says a few other things first, anyway, but in the third point it says, This infallible assurance of faith does not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be a a partaker of it. That is, faith and assurance are not the same thing and it might actually be a long time before a true believer finds that assurance of, of faith. Then goes on to say, True believers may have the assurance of their salvation in many ways shaken, diminished and intermitted as by negligence in preserving it, by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and permitting even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet they are never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty out of which by the operation of the Spirit this assurance may in due time be revived and by the which in the meantime they are supported from utter despair. Do you see what it's saying? It's saying that... that this this assurance of faith may be shaken by all kinds of things, by God allowing us to go through great trials, through great difficulties, through some kind of sin, through our negligence in in seeking after assurance of faith. But yet in the meantime there are still those those hints of faith, love of the brethren and, and, and hungering after Christ and the hope that that assurance might in due time be revived. Well, maybe you find yourself in that condition A lack of assurance. Maybe you find yourself in the condition of this leper. You might have no trouble believing the facts of the Gospel. No trouble believing that Jesus is the Son of God. No trouble believing that salvation is in Christ alone, by faith alone. No trouble knowing that you're a sinner, that your only hope is the mercy of God. You might have no trouble believing that and yet your great fear is that it's beyond you, that you've never received it that God is not willing. You might be crying out to God that he would save you and yet you doubt whether he will. Well, if that's you, if you find yourself in that condition, then be encouraged that the faith which Jesus responded to in the case of this leper was that hesitant, struggling faith. In fact, somewhat ironically, I think, that even though to us the faith of this leper looks small, the faith of this liver contains those great hallmarks of faith. That is faith to believe in the power of God in Christ, faith to believe that he has no right to salvation and faith enough to come and ask for help. It's not great conviction which saves us, it's the power of God and the mercy of God which saves us and all we need to do is ask for it from Jesus Christ. And if you uh, lack assurance then... Uh, that Jesus is willing to save you, then be encouraged as well by Jesus' words to the leper. Jesus says, I am willing, be clean. The Bible uh, goes to great lengths to show us that not only is Jesus powerful but he is willing to save. Jesus is willing to heal this leper. The Bible tells us also that God doesn't want anyone to perish but that all might come to repentance or in John 6, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And Jesus only just said in the Sermon on the Mount, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. If you doubt the mercy of God, then be encouraged that he is willing and keep seeking him and keep pursuing him and keep coming to Jesus who will not turn you away. So I think that's the first thing that these uh, stories tell us, these accounts tell us about the nature of biblical faith. They remind us that assurance is not of the essence of faith. But secondly, I think they show us that uh, biblical faith recognises Jesus' authority. Uh, In the second episode, uh, a centurion comes to Jesus because... Uh, his servant is sick, the centurion's servant is sick and when Jesus hears that, he offers to go and to heal the servant. Uh, and the centurion says, no, I'm not worthy enough for you to come. Uh, just say a word and my servant will be healed. Uh, and Jesus describes these, these words of the centurion that he speaks to Jesus as some of the, words, uh, the greatest words of faith that he's ever heard. Listen to what Jesus says about the centurion's words. In verse 10, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Well, What were the words of great faith which the centurion spoke? Verse 8, centurion says, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. I suspect if you were to ask most people to give you words of great faith, they probably wouldn't come up with words like these. You know, If you were to say, what are words of great faith, you probably wouldn't pick on the centurion's words, I'm a man under authority. What's going on? How are these words of the centurion's such words of great faith? What uh, confuses us, I think, at one level is uh, his words: "I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me." Uh, it sounds a little bit like he's not claiming anything more than uh, I have people who tell me what to do. I tell other people what to do. Jesus, I know that uh, you can tell things, to, tell people what to do, and it will happen. Tell the creation to do what to do, and it will happen. Uh, it sounds like that's the kind of the level of the comparison. But what this centurion is actually saying is. This, He's claiming something about his status as a soldier in the Roman army. Uh, He's claiming in particular that he had an authority delegated to him. Uh, So the Emperor of Rome had delegated to him as a Roman centurion an an authority to act on behalf of the Roman Empire. That's why uh, his soldiers listened to him. Uh, I don't know about you but I give orders to people all the time uh, and no one ever follows them. No one ever listens to me. Uh, I think my mum had that same problem at home as well. She'd always be t- t- telling uh, us children what to do and no one ever listened. Well, that's not true. But, b- but you know what it's like. No one ever listens. Well, why, did, why did they listen to the centurion? They listened to the centurion because he was speaking with the authority of Rome. To, def- to defy him was to defy the Roman Empire and to, de- to-, to defy the Roman Emperor. He spoke not with his own authority but with a delegated authority. And in the same way, this centurion understands something similar about Jesus. He understands that when Jesus speaks, he's not speaking with his own authority, with just the authority of a man. He's speaking with the authority of God. Who else can speak and creation listens? Who else but God can speak and creation listens and in the same way the centurion understands that when Jesus speaks God speaks as well what makes this centurion's words great faith is not just that he thought that Jesus could heal his servant at a distance I mean that's a minor miracle in itself to believe that but what this the, the great thing that this centurion understood was that Jesus spoke with the authority of God Jesus' own own people, the Jews, uh, didn't. Many didn't believe that they didn't receive uh, God's words about Jesus. But this centurion, this Gentile Roman centurion, understood more about the identity of Jesus than many others did. If the first reality of biblical faith then was the distinction between assurance and faith, the second great reality of biblical faith is that it recognises the source of Jesus' authority. What makes faith great? We might be tempted to answer that what makes faith great is great conviction. But we've already seen that in the first point that that, that that's not right. We might think that a sign of great faith is great acts for God, great great works on God's behalf. But Jesus' answer I think is surprising. What makes faith great, it's recognising that Jesus speaks with the authority of God. It's almost pedestrian, isn't it? It's almost a bit ordinary. But Jesus says that's what makes faith great, to see that Jesus, to believe that Jesus speaks as God himself. Maybe another way of saying it is, is that biblical faith is less about faith itself than about the object of faith. About it's more about Jesus than it is about faith. These two chapters of Matthew, as I said, are all about faith, but they're also all about Jesus. That's because the very cornerstone of our faith is understanding and believing and appropriating the truth of Jesus' identity. Our instinct is to examine our faith. But Matthew encourages us to understand who Jesus is and to trust him. Our instinct is to, to lower our eyes. But Matthew encourages us to, to lift our eyes and to see Jesus and to focus on him. Our instinct is to think that our sin is insurmountable and, and beyond uh, repair. But the reality is that Jesus can make us clean, if He is willing, and He is willing if we ask Him. Our I think that we need some special experience of God, some special encounter with God. But Jesus, we discover, can heal our souls even from a great distance, just by speaking a word. To have great faith, you don't need to have great conviction. You merely need faith the size of a grain of mustard. What you need is faith that recognises who Jesus is. He's the Son of God, he's the Messiah and faith enough to ask him to save you. The centurion's faith was great not because he believed more intently than anyone else but because he recognised Jesus' incredible authority more truly. His faith was great not in its amount but in its quality He understood and he approached Jesus because of it. But uh, lest we misunderstand uh, the nature of faith as well, Matthew wants to push us to other ideas. He wants to push us as his readers uh, to understand uh, another few things about uh, Jesus. He wants us to see in particular that uh, Jesus' healing miracles were just a shadow of something greater. The last uh, vignette in this section focuses almost exclusively on Jesus' healing ministry. Uh, It mentions the healing of Peter's mother, uh, uh, the healing of the vast crowds who came to Jesus and again it reiterates the fact uh, that Jesus healed them with nothing more than a word. Uh, Then Matthew tells us, this whole healing ministry, the healing of the leper and the, and the centurion servant and Peter's mother and the crowds beyond, all these were done to fulfil what Isaiah said. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Some, uh, some Christians take that verse to mean uh, that we ought to expect uh, that Jesus will heal us today if we believe enough. Uh, not only does that misunderstand the nature of faith that we've seen, that's not about great conviction, but it also misunderstands, I think, what, Jesus, uh, what Matthew is trying to show us here about Jesus. Matthew, it seems, is trying to do uh, two things by quoting from Isaiah. Uh, in the first place, it's helpful to realise that Matthew isn't talking about what we should expect to happen today. Uh, he's talking about what happened Uh, around what Jesus did then. Matthew is saying specifically that 2,000 years ago Jesus did healing miracles that fulfilled something in that day, at that time, something that had been uh, foretold in Isaiah's words. Uh, That is, the whole reason for Matthew quoting from Isaiah is to give us reasons to trust Jesus. Uh, he's been doing that actually all through this passage. Uh, the cleansed leper was told, for instance, to go and show himself to the priests. Why was that? Well, it's because the priests were the ones who were supposed to testify when someone had been cleansed from their leprosy. So Jesus tells him to go to the priests. In a sense, I think, almost to authenticate the success of the miracle. Uh, So too in the case of the centurion's servant, Matthew tells us that the servant was healed at that very hour. Matthew wants us to know that what Jesus said would happen, happened. And then in this last section, Matthew is claiming like so often before in his Gospel, he's claiming that Jesus' actions fulfilled the Old Testament. He's saying if you look at the Old Testament, what kind of Messiah would you expect? Well, you would expect a Messiah who took up People's infirmities and sicknesses, and healed them. And he's saying, "Look, this is the Messiah that Jesus is." It's important to see that the kind of faith that Matthew is encouraging us to have, that the Bible is encouraging us to have, is not a leap of faith kind of faith. It's not faith contrary to facts. That's what uh, that's what faith means more often in, in our society. But Matthew is saying, look, there's good reasons to believe in Jesus. The kind of faith that the the Bible puts up for us to have is not so much faith in the sense that we think about it, but trust. And when you trust someone, you trust them because they're trustworthy, don't you? You'd be an idiot to trust someone, quite frankly. You'd be an idiot to trust someone who you had no reason to trust. Well, Matthew says you have reason to trust God, to trust Jesus because Jesus has proved to be trustworthy. So, we've seen that great assurance is not of the essence of biblical faith. We've seen that biblical faith recognises the authority of Jesus. And now Matthew reminds us in the way that he presents his material that biblical faith is Rational faith, it's rational evidence-based faith. The second thing and the last thing which Matthew tells us about uh, biblical faith, the second thing that he does uh, in his quote from Isaiah is to help us to see past the miracles to the great significance uh, of who Jesus is and what he's doing. Matthew helps us to see uh, what these miracles say about the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. The quote that Matthew gives is uh, taken from Isaiah 53, that great Old Testament passage famous for its description and depiction of a suffering Messiah. It describes in Isaiah 53 a Messiah who is rejected and despised by men a Messiah who takes upon himself the sin of the people, a Messiah who is stricken by God and afflicted, a Messiah who is cut off from the land of the living, a Messiah who is cut off and yet who lives and through whom God creates uh, a new people. What Matthew is doing is showing us that Jesus' healing ministry points beyond healing to something even more foundational. It's pointing to forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. You see, it's not that Jesus is disinterested in sickness and disease. That's not it at all. Jesus is, is obviously intensely interested in sickness and disease. He's healed the leper, he's healed the centurion's servant, he's healed uh, Peter's mother and, and, and a whole crowd of people. But sickness and, and disease are symptoms of a deeper reality, of a deeper d- uh, sickness, of a deeper disease. Sickness and suffering are symptoms of the sin which bars us from God. (coughs) It's because of sin that our world is cursed and Jesus has come to deal with both sin and disease by dealing with sin. Jesus takes up our sicknesses and our diseases by taking up the root cause which is sin and nailing it to a tree. What Matthew wants us to see is the kind of Messiah that we ought to believe in. Jesus is not a Messiah who, who, uh, who helps us simply when we're sick and helps us to get better. He's not just a, a doctor. And he's not less than that either, actually. But more importantly, Jesus is a Messiah who deals with our sin and guilt and rebellion against God. Biblical faith recognises that most fundamentally of all, Jesus is the Messiah who takes up our sin. And we, we need to never forget that. We must never forget that our greatest need, our most pressing need is for our sin and rebellion against God to be dealt with. It's not our trust in Christ for healing from sickness that will save us. You might trust in Christ immensely for the, the kind of things of everyday life. You might trust in, in, in God uh, to help you get through your work this week. You might trust in God when you're sick to, to help you get better. You might trust in God to help you be uh, a good parent. Uh, you might trust in God for all kinds of things. But if you don't trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and reconciliation with God, then whatever kind of faith you have, it's not biblical faith. Now, at the end of the day, the faith which saves is a faith which not only recognises our dependency on the kindness of God and the mercy of God, and a faith which recognises the authority of Jesus, but it's also a faith which recognises that the mission of Jesus is to save us from our sin, from the guilt of sin and from the power of sin, by dying on the cross and by raising us to life. Those are the great hallmarks of biblical faith. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, It's amazing how sometimes the most fundamental things can be the hardest to grasp. Lord, help us to understand the nature of faith. But Lord, more than that, help us to understand the object of our faith, who is Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to see his willingness to save His authority to speak as your majestic son. His ability to deal with our sin and our rebellion against you and our lovelessness for you. Lord, help us to see all those things that we might have reason to trust him and to believe in him. Father, keep us from always looking at our own faith and examining our faith and neglecting to see that the most important thing is to see Jesus, to understand him and to believe in him. Lord, we pray for those who struggle with the assurance of salvation. Lord, help them to believe that you're willing to save them and help them to see the fruits and the evidences in their lives that they really belong to you. And Lord, in the meantime, help them to keep seeking you and to keep uh, pursuing you and to keep pounding on the door of heaven. That one day they might have that full assurance of faith. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.